Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Trisha Stefankowitz, and I happen to be a registered dietitian nutritionist as well. On our episode today, I want to do a follow-up from last week's episode where we talked about sugar. And so a lot of times when we talk about sugar, we talk about the opposite of sugar, which are sugar substitutes and natural sweeteners and things that are considered like zero calorie alternatives. So in this episode, I want to dive into the etiology of kind of like the history of where these sweeteners came from. I want to talk about some of the research and the usefulness of sweeteners, some of the downsides, and then just kind of overall what that looks like for you in your life. The reason why I wanted to dive into this topic is my mom is a diabetic. She's a type two diabetic and she always has, or always did have a Splenda with her all the time. She was that woman who you would go to restaurants or to somebody's house or anywhere. And she'd be pulling out her baggie full of Splenda. And then recently when she was over at my house, she, I of course have Splenda and I of course have Splenda for her. And she was like, oh no, no, I stopped eating Splenda or, you know, adding it to my food and now I'm on sugar. So we talked a lot about it. And so I just wanted to kind of dive into a little bit about artificial sweeteners because maybe you're like her and you had some questions about it. And so I thought it would be important to dive into. And also it's always good for me to relook at the research because with the field of nutrition, there's always so much changing all the time. So when we talk about sugar sweeteners, we are going to start talking about first the history of artificial sweeteners. And in this episode, I'm using artificial sweeteners and sugar sweeteners alternatively. So you'll probably hear me do that a lot. So the first artificial sweetener that was discovered was saccharin. So most of you know that saccharin is associated with sweet and low. That's like kind of the what, what it's used in. And that's how you all know it. So saccharin was discovered by accident, as I feel like all discoveries are, um, by scientists at Johns Hopkins University here in the States in 1879. So after that, after that discovery, they started using it in products. Um, I guess they started using it in products in the States. So a lot of this research is more like what happens in the States, knowing that in Europe and other countries, there's different laws um, when it comes to the use of sugar substitute, just that caveat. So they started using it in like canned products and just products in general. And then in 1907, these products were banned. Then World War I actually came around and there was this increase in a sugar shortage. And so what ended up happening is, is that they needed an, an alternative to sugar. And so saccharin was then able to be used again, essentially deemed as safe enough to use again because of the war and because of the shortage. And then it continued to be used in the States all throughout that time. So in the 1960s, really started this revolution in terms of using saccharin for weight loss. It was deemed as like something that could help you lose weight. 
And so people started using it as probably a weight loss tool, maybe at that time for diabetes, although I feel like that might have been a little bit later. And then they started doing all these studies when it came to saccharin. And I'm sure a lot of you guys know what these studies. So I remember back in the day when I was in nutrition school hearing all about the studies related to bladder cancer in rats. So essentially, they fed rats um, all, like these high, high, high amounts of saccharin. And then they saw that there was a risk factor for those rats that were fed all that saccharin to get bladder cancer. And so then it was banned. And then there was a lot of emphasis on those studies that, you know, the high amount of saccharin is not probably what people would use. And that there was always, there was also this like, are rats and humans, does it have the same effect? Because one is actually, you know, just kind of trying to figure out if the rat and the human metabolize saccharin the same way. So originally it was saccharin was taken off the market and then in 1977, and then it was put back on the market in the States in the 2000s and basically considered safe at that point in time. But then the 80s came along and because saccharin, you know, was off the market, there started to be other products that were now in the market. And that's when really aspartame comes on the market and aspartame is the NutraSweeten, the equal. And then all along the way, there's been all these different sweeteners. So that's kind of the etiology of it. So it was discovered by accident. The The upside of it was that it helped manage weight um, and it helped control diabetes for people who, you know, had high blood sugar. And so one of the really big things that was really intriguing for people is that typically, you know, your normal sugar that you have, that white cane sugar or any kind of sugar that we talked about last week has some form of calories in it and it raises blood sugar levels. And the intriguing part of the sugar substitutes were that they were no calorie or low calorie and that there was this um, a decrease in pl- blood sugar levels and was really helpful for people who had type 2 diabetes. Remember, there's a caveat here that type 1 diabetes is very different than type 2 diabetes, that type 1 diabetes is not curable, it usually tends to be autoimmune, and there's usually an insulin dependence there. Um, type 2 diabetes, although they call them different things these days, is usually something that um, could be more lifestyle related and maybe reversible reversible. So they're different. All right. So at this point in time, because of all that, there has just been this explosion of different substitutes on the market of different things. Um, And I think a lot of it is like also keeping up with whatever the latest diet craze is. So for a while, um, you know, for a while it was like, there was a lot of like diet sodas, diet, different things. And then, you know, there's, it just, it probably tries to keep up with like paleo, keto, all the diet phases. And then that's how some of these things become popular. So right now in the States, there are five sugar substitutes that have been approved by the FDA. So when they're talking about sugar substitutes, again, we're talking about artificial sweeteners. We're talking about non-nutritive sweeteners. And when we talk about the FDA, what they're saying is, is that there's five of them that are generally recognized as safe. They use this acronym called GROSS, and it that's what it means, generally recognized as safe. So the five that they use are aspartame, that's your NutraSweet and your Equal. There's your saccharin, that's your original guy, your sweet and low. They have sucralose, which is the Splenda. There is asa sulfame K, 
which you probably wouldn't add to anything, but it tends to be a lot in your diet sodas. <clears throat> then you have neotame. So they're your five ones. And again, the ones that you're really going to get that are going to be like your packets that are on a table when you go to a restaurant are probably going to be your top three, your, your NutraSweet or Equal, your Aspartame, your Sweet and Low, your Saccharin, and your Splenda, which is called Sucralose. And then you have a whole nother category of, um, of sweeteners because there's all different categories and the different categories have different things that work for them and things that don't work for them. So you have your five sugar substitutes and you have these sugar alcohols. Your sugar alcohols are these things that are, there tend to be in everything. They're used as a sweetener in like chewing gum and different candies. And they are things that usually end with an OL. So if you're reading the ingredients, you may see erythritol, xylitol, sorbitol, mannitol, malitol, they all end in like an OL, okay? And so these sugar alcohols, why they're used is because they are a naturally occurring sugar from fruits and veggies. As we talked about last week, there's a difference between added sugar and naturally occurring sugars. And so these sugar alcohols are naturally occurring. And they're usually mixed with, or they can be mixed with different um, sugar substitutes in order to create that like effect that it's going to help, you know, be lower calorie and be sweeter and to help with blood sugar levels, but they differ, um, depending on which one it is. And so some of these also have like small amounts of sugar in them, but so they may not be completely zero calorie free because there is a small amount of sugar in them, depending on what you're doing and what the product is. And so they may provide some calories, although not as much as sugar. But what happens with sugar alcohols is they're not very well tolerated. So you may notice um, if you're eating something like sugar-free. So if you're eating a sugar-free product because you have diabetes and you feel like that's the better alternative for you, what may happen is, is they may, and this was a lot before I feel like the more natural sweeteners are on the market that I'm going to talk about in a minute, but like the sugar-free cookies and the sugar-free products, they have and they will if you eat a lot of them, they will cause some GI distress, some gas and bloating, some diarrhea, and there's some decreased absorption. So a lot of times I feel like if you're eating something that's sugar-free, you may notice that, that your belly just gets like so upset. And that's because it's the nature of the sugar alcohols, that they just don't have a good absorption rate and that there is some GI distress that's noted with it. So you have your sugar substitutes that are FDA approved, you have your sugar alcohols, and then you have these like natural sweeteners, which I feel like this is what you guys are going to start hearing more about. And so these are touted as like, oh, these are better than your aspartame and your saccharin and your sucralose, like these are more natural. So the two that I feel like that are common in the U.S., are your stevia leaf extract. So that tends to be like your Truvia, your Purevia. And these are like, these are these natural sweeteners that are from a plant leaf extract. And they're different than the whole leaf extract as they're typically very refined. 
So they tend to be mixed with other sweeteners. So those sweeteners could be like a glucose or a sugar alcohol. So you have your, your stevia leaf extract, which is very refined and tends to be mixed with other sweeteners. And then you actually have like, you have like the actual whole leaf stevia which are different, they act differently. So remembering that the stevia leaf extract is very like, it's very refined and it's mixed with other sweeteners. And because there's glucose present, because it's mixed with other sweeteners, you can, if you eat a whole bunch of it, it will still give you some calories because it still has some glucose in it because it is mixed with other um, glucose and sugar alcohols. And what people really like about these is that they feel like there is, they feel like it's more natural because it's from a, a, a plant leaf extract, even though it is very refined, probably in the way that you and I are eating them in the form of Truvia or Purvia. Um, one of the other things that people like about this stevia leaf extract is that they can bake with them. And you'll also see with sucralose or Splenda, it's kind of the same way. Like there's some, there's some of these sweeteners that can be used in heat and hot temperatures. They can tolerate and some that can't. Typically the stevia and the, um, and the Splenda tends to be the two that people can bake with. One of the things that people don't like about the stevia leaf extract is that it has like a licorice taste to it. Um, also, I don't know if you guys have ever tried it where they have the fiber in it. Sometimes I feel like that can cause like if they have sevy leaf extract with fiber because they're trying to give you more fiber. I feel like sometimes that can cause GI distress too. So just kind of know that there's a difference there too, that there's that added layer of fiber, which if, especially if you're somebody who has irritable bowel or some kind of GI symptoms, that that might be something that you maybe not want to add is the stevia with fiber. So also before we get off the topic of stevia leaf extract, knowing that again, they're different. The stevia leaf extract is different than the actual whole leaf stevia. And so the stevia leaf extract, because it's on the market is, is studied. I, because it's a food, right? So most of all of your food, especially in the States, is going to be regulated. Your whole leaf stevia, um, it, the information on it is pretty limited. And so we don't really know its efficacy or its harm. And if you are somebody who is taking whole leaf stevia, again, it's not as refined. So there is some concern that maybe it should not be taken during pregnancy because we just don't know what that effect is. But the stevia leaf extract, because it's so refined and it's on the market, it's, it's considered safe. And then the last one is this monk fruit sweetener, also called monk fruit extract. So this is also touted as something between the stevia and the monk fruit are touted as like the healthier of all the sugar um, substitutes and the sugar sweeteners. Monk fruit comes from an Asian fruit that is grown in Southeast Asia. And why a lot of people are drawn to this is it's like anything in the sense that these sugar substitutes, it has that limited, um, the limited calorie level, and it's from naturally occurring sugars because it's from an Asian fruit. That's also touted as being better because it has antioxidants in it. When it's used in sweeteners, usually they use a combination of other sweeteners when they're doing this. So it's not just the monk fruit sweetener. 
it's typically mixed with like an inulin or erythritol in it too. So if you have some, if you're somebody who has like um, SIBO, which is small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, or again, you're somebody who has like GI symptoms, that might aggravate those symptoms a little bit. Um, and there is a fruitier, a fruity taste to it. So sometimes people don't always like it. So just to kind of be mindful of that. Um, monk fruit extract tends to be a little bit harder to find than the other substitutes that we've talked about. And there is limited research on monk fruit. But I think it's touted as like being healthier in some ways because it's actually from a fruit. It's more naturally occurring than like your other um, sugar substitutes, which may be man-made in a lab as essentially the other ones that we have, like your um, your aspartame, your your aspartame, your saccharin, your sucralose, your acesulfan K, and your neotame. So. Now let's talk about a little bit about why, like some of the benefits of these sugar sweeteners. So why people like them, the main reasons is that they're zero calories. So if, you know, you'll see a lot of people using them as an alternative to sugar when they're trying to lose weight. Um, it is if somebody has type 2 diabetes or even type 1 diabetes and they're trying not to get that extra glucose, it's useful in that way too. One of the other things that people like about it is it doesn't cause cause tooth decay. So a big thing with sugar is like teeth falling out and tooth decay. And so because these um, these products are not sugar, they tend to have less of that tooth decay that could happen in people that consume a lot of them. And the other thing is that these products all vary, but they tend to be sweeter than sugar. So most of them are 200 greater than 200% sweeter than sugar. So people feel like, okay, well, I would use a lot of sugar, but with these products, I use less of them. And so because they're using less of them, they're, you know, they feel good about that because they're not having that added sugar. And then also they're having less of those ingredients because they tend to be um, sweeter. Now, some of the not so useful benefits of these sugar substitutes are that it's all varied, the research. It's, it's all over the place, depending on what the product is. It probably depends on what country you're in. It probably depends on the amount that you're consuming. But as we know, overall, there's really no health benefit. It's not giving you anything. It's not adding value in terms of um, nutritional content when it comes to your health. But what it is doing is it's helping manage your weight and maybe your blood sugar too, um, you know, if if that is one of the things that you're working on when it comes to your health. So there are some research that says that some of these sugar substitutes may be linked to cancer. Um, and really, it's unclear what the long-term effect is. So remember with like all nutrition research, this is based on what evidence we have right now. But as the research becomes more like, because that's the thing with all of this research, it's very inconclusive. It depends on like what substitute you use. I'm sure some of those substitutes were mixed with other ones. And then this, the amount of consumption that people are doing, and that's going to vary according to individual, according to um, taste preference, according to just so many different things. But one of the things where one of the research where a lot of the research is going is again, you'll see stuff that is linked to cancer and sugar substitutes. And where the newer research is going that there's a lot of um, 
There's a lot of studies that you guys have probably heard about where it comes to like the gut biome. And so the gut biome, what that essentially means is that recently, more recently, they've been really talking a lot about the good bacteria that resides in your gut, right? So we have all these microorganisms that sit in our GI tract. And the best way that we can diversify our GI tract is by eating lots of different foods because each food serves a purpose and populates our gut. We call it like our gut flora in a different way. And one of the impacts, the really great impacts of our gut is it provides a lot of immunity. So a lot of times people will do all these things to prevent them from getting sick, but a lot of the research shows that there's a lot of immunity in your GI tract. So how we like to keep our GI tract nice and healthy is to eat foods that have like, just just like a varied, just varied foods and And we know it also helps in digestion too. And we know that there's like more research is also going to this like gut brain kind of connection. So right now, a lot of the research is studying the connection between like different diseases and having this healthy gut microbiome and essentially what that does to help prevent diseases. And then also the impact of your gut biome, microbiome being not as diversified and not as healthy, those microorganisms. And then what is that doing? How is that increasing your risk of disease? And so this is when we're talking about this gut biome, microbiome, because there is some research to say that some of these things, some of these sugar substitutes may have a harmful effect or like a harmful effect on our GI tract, meaning that they could really like kind of mess with the gut flora that's there. That's what some of the evidence shows. When I am talking about um, diabetes, because I'm not an expert in diabetes, I go back to I go back to my research who my resource who is Angela Manderfield. I had her on this podcast. It was episode 150. If you are somebody who has diabetes or pre-diabetes, I recommend you go back and listen to it. She wrote a book. She is a diabetes expert. She has all the qualifications. She's an RD. She is she just has all the qualifications as certified a certified diabetes educator. And she wrote a book, it's called Outsmarting Your Diabetes, and you can find her at outsmartingyourdiabetes.com. But I actually have the book, it's really good. And she talks a lot about reversing diabetes. That's kind of her, um, that's kind of her niche. But in her book, because I wanted to see what she said about um, sugar sweeteners, she recommends that, you know, what she thinks is better um, if someone is interested in using a natural sweetener would be using the stevia or the monk fruit because it seems like that may not have that same harmful effect on your gut biome. And a lot of stuff with diabetes is also focusing on like keeping your your um, microbiome healthy because hopefully that will then you know, help prevent different chronic diseases. So there is a link there. And you may have heard like some rumblings of this whole like gut flora kind of connection. And again, it's like newer research that they're doing. I mean, 
we've known for a long time that there's a lot of immunity in the GI tract, but now there ends, there tends to be a lot more like people are doing a lot of different probiotics and they're selling all of these things to try to keep your, um, your gut nice and healthy. And that's why is because they think there's a, a, a link in disease, um, that comes with that. So again, her recommendation is that if you were to use a sugar substitute, she believes that the sugar substitutes that do the least amount of damage in terms of your GI tract are the stevia and the monk fruit. But I think knowing that that these are these are newer products, the stevia and the monk fruit, um, newer to the U.S. anyway, and there's just not a lot of research about that anyway. So that information could change too. So. Let's talk about some of the other side effects. Some of the other side effects in terms of having any of these sugar substitutes is that there's some concern that um, it may be as addictive as sugar, essentially, right? And this is kind of mixed research. I noticed this for myself, though. Like if I'm going and I'm drinking a diet soda, it tastes so good that the next time I could start off with like a small And then I'm like, oh my God, I think I need a large because it's just like, I just want it. There's just something about it. Um, And there are some small, really small studies that say that the more diet soda that's consumed, the more weight that was gained. So this was a really small study and they did, they monitored individuals that had more than 21 diet sodas per week. So that's, that's a lot. And what they found is that those individuals were more at risk for being overweight or obese. So, you know, I think that's some of the stuff that we're that they're trying to figure out is like, why is that? Is there, um, is that the side effect? Is that there's some, um, you know, that there might be some addictive quality to it? And then they're also trying to figure out if it still has, if it like if it aids in insulin resistance or like kind of what its effect is on your body. So just so that you kind of know that when you're making a decision with whatever you want to do. So overall, like now you're like, okay, what do I do with all this information that you gave me? And I don't know what to eat. So I think overall, it's just like everything, like everything, it's just use in moderation, right? So essentially I went on the, the American Diabetes Association and they kind of say the same thing. There are some good qualities to using sugar substitutes. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of different things. It's really going to just be an individual choice, essentially, that, you know, sugar sugar is considered that, you know, you want to use that in moderation and sugar sweeteners are the same way. It's probably safe if you're eating in small amounts, but it's really taking this approach that it's more balanced. Um, and you know, knowing that sugar sweeteners and sugar do different things to different people, sugar substitutes are different for different people. Um, you know, I, I think the people who really should not probably do sugar substitutes, let me just kind of say that first, or anybody who is who has IBS, um, so that's irritable bowel syndrome. So I have that. I'm sure probably most of you have it. Um, if you notice that there's a flare in your symptoms, so some of the symptoms with IBS probably related to that whole gut flora kind of deal, is that you may notice gas or bloat or diarrhea. So you know maybe you don't do a sugar substitute because that's it makes it worse. Um, it might not just be for you, it may lead to even changes in your, your gut microbiome. So again, that might be, that's just one caveat I would say. Um, children under two probably wouldn't do a sugar substitute. We just don't know that impact um, on their long-term health. 
And then there's people with genetic diseases. Um, one of them, you know, PKU, fetal ketonuria, I think it is, PKU. And so those individuals have to avoid aspartame. They cannot have it. So again, when we're talking about sugar substitutes, really just trying to figure out what works for you, what um, works for your life and what works for your past medical history. And it's an individual, it's an individual choice. Again, eat in moderation is probably safe when I, I hate even saying it's probably safe. I guess with the literature that we have now, it's, it's considered safe in the States in small amounts and just to kind of have that balanced approach, um, that there is a difference if you have type one diabetes or type two diabetes in what you know, in your need for having them. So perhaps you're somebody who has type diabetes, type one diabetes, you might, this might be something that you need to consume because it's the only way that you can moderate your blood sugar. Um, and you have an autoimmune disease. There's no cure. It can't be prevented. So for type one, you're really just trying to prevent progression. However you can do that is how you do that. Um, and then if you have type two diabetes, because it's more progressive and more able to be reversed, you know, maybe, maybe you're able to do a little bit more sugar substitutes and then also, um, you know, sugar or whatever you need to do to kind of help manage your blood sugar. That remembering all of this is, is individualized to you based on your, where you live and based on your past medical history and based on your preferences. Um, different things work for different people. And so if you're somebody who needs to use it, I'm giving you permission. And if you're someone who doesn't use it, I'm giving you my permission too. Because remembering when I'm telling you these things, I'm just giving you the information based on the research, but it's really up to you to decide what works for your life. Um, you know, like my mom with Splenda, like she decides that that isn't so great for her. I don't know what that's going to do for her diabetes, but that's the choice that she made because she feels better in not consuming the Splenda and going back to the sugar. So I don't know what that long-term effect will look like for her. I mean, I guess it'll really depend on what her hemoglobin A1C looks like. So again, trying to figure out what works for you and not really, you know, just knowing and being okay with that. Because I don't want to get into this place that because we're talking about sugar and we're talking about sugar substitutes that we're labeling food as good or bad, we're, I'm really trying here to just give you the information and then you to try to figure out what you need, what you want to keep what's in your life and what you want to change what's in your life. And I feel like a lot of that is based on the knowledge, but making it really simple so that you don't feel like you have to make an all or nothing change. And also, I don't want to promote this idea of good or bad foods, but trying to find balance and how much you consume so that you can give your body like a really well-rounded approach to food. Um, and again, knowing what's in line with the current research, this is the current research, it could change. And I will tell you that sugar, I eat sugar, I eat sugar substitutes. For a long time, I avoided diet soda and it wasn't because of the sugar. I was, I have a hip fracture that I've been healing for like five, six years and so I have a lot of damage in my hip. So I wasn't avoiding diet soda because of the the diet component of it or the sugar substitute. I had been avoiding diet soda because of my hip and I was worried about the phosphorus levels on my bone health. But then I'll tell you what, last year my son was in T-ball and they have a like a snack stand there. And do you know, like I'm like over there getting my diet soda for the first time in like five years and it was amazing. 
And then I found myself being like, every time I would go to his game, which was like twice a week for a little bit, and I'd be getting diet sodas. And then all of a sudden I'd be having bigger diet sodas and bigger diet sodas because there is like, at least for me, there is like this addictive quality. I feel so good when I consume it. And because of that, I would be like, oh, let me have a bigger amount because I just wanted that satisfaction. And I really had to be like, okay, let me just kind of get away from this and figure out what I like. And that's, and and so now I still do diet soda. I just try to like kind of moderate it and just try to like, you know, make the decision about what size I'm going to have before I even go into the store. Because once there's just something that happens when I see diet soda in a cup with ice, that makes me so happy that I'm like, all right, I just need to like make a decision before I see all that because it's going to influence my decision. So maybe you feel that way too. So I'm definitely not saying you can never have these products. I'm just saying, try to figure out how it works in your life because I think what happens and why this podcast is, is called like whole health empowerment project is because it's trying to find some kind of balance from where you are now. It's not saying that you'll ever achieve balance because I don't know how I don't really think that's uh, like, I don't think that that's really ever happens that you achieve balance, but the way that most people in the U S anyway, are eating, it's out of balance in the sense that we tend to eat more things like sugar and sugar substitutes and less things like whole fruits and veggies. But that's where really the, that's where the, that's where all the benefit is, is in those whole fruits and veggies and those whole food products. Right. And so it's just this way of like trying to get a little bit a little bit more balanced than that approach that we're eating some foods that are naturally occurring. And then you can have these other things too, but having a little bit more balance with that, if that makes any sense. So what I would say to you is that if you're somebody who after listening to this episode, you're thinking, oh shit, I need to eat less sugar substitutes. Well, certainly, you know, the best way to start is just do a little bit less than maybe you're doing now. Um, Again, I go back and forth. I go through periods in my life. I'm sure you're wondering, since I'm a dietitian, like, well, what does she do? Well, I, I, I go through periods. Like, I go through periods where I'm adding Splenda to my tea, and right now I'm not because I'm trying to explore that too. Like, what is it? Do I need that, or is it just something that I'm doing? And I'm trying to figure out my approach to food too, right? Which is why we're talking about this. Um, I also think that it messes with my belly, but I really would have not known that. Like, I think it makes me pretty bloated and I feel like I just need more and more of it. So I'm trying to explore that, but it doesn't mean that I'm not having it in other products either. Cause again, you're going to get a lot of these, you're going to get a lot of these products in, you're not even going to know probably half the time when you're eating candies and stuff, it's going to have it in there. And again, if you're drinking diet soda, it's going to have probably multiple ones in there. So I think it's just whatever works for your life that you're trying to have and create a little bit more balance in the sense that you're having foods that feel good for you. So if any of these things over time, they don't make you feel that great, then don't do them. You don't have to do them. And I suspect that as we get more and more research on the whole like healthy gut microbiome and just it's linked to diseases, what I'm telling you now in this might be different. Um, because all we can do is, you know, do what we can with the information that we have. And again, with nutrition information, it's ever evolving. So 
I think the one thing that is probably the safest is to try to eat your fruits and veggies as much as you can in your whole grain products that you can do sugars, you know, sometimes and you can do sugar substitutes sometimes too, but just having everything in moderation and deciding what it is that you want to do and what works for your life based on where you're at right now, based on the diseases that you have and based on, you know, whatever makes you feel good. So again, no judgment here and just do what's right for you. So if you decide that you want to make a change, just start small, just make one change today. And then over time, it'll get a little bit easier. So I hope this helps and I hope it didn't lead to any more confusion. I'm trying to make it as like non-judgmental as possible. Um, and I hope to see you guys back here next week. We'll talk about something even more confusing. (laughs) Hopefully not. Um, all right. So I'll see you guys back here next week. Have a good week. Bye-bye.